is getting really expensive. Employment up, but so are gas prices and inflation. Middle class and working class Americans are, are struggling. Rising debt, immigration, the cost of insulin. We'll take it all to the Congresswoman. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Parents have a fundamental role in the education, health care, and well-being of their children. What do the new parents' rights mean for schools? I officially vetoed the congressional redistricting map, as I said that I would. A line in the sand. The governor's got a very thoughtful argument about the U.S. Constitution. Florida's voting districts back to the drawing board. The big stories of the week, live this week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the economic good news, bad news this week. A very positive jobs report nationally and in South Florida. It's good news for the Biden administration, but that positivity may be a hard sell to those buying gas and groceries and anything else rising in prices. Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz joins us now from Weston. She is, of course, a South Florida Democrat who represents the 23rd Congressional District, Southwest Broward and Northeast Miami-Dade, and she has served in Congress since 2004. Congresswoman, great to have you with us this morning. That's since you were nine, maybe 10 years old? <laughs> yeah, something like that, exactly. We'll go with that. <laughs> great, great to see to you this you. morning, Congresswoman. We will get to well. Ukraine and the economy in just a minute. First, I want to ask you, as you well know, Tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to vote on the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. Uh, and that is going to get to the Senate floor, and it appears that it, she will be confirmed. Would you agree? I do agree. Uh, Katanji Jackson is one of the most qualified Supreme Court nominees in history. Uh, she's a, we're proud of our hometown girl from Miami. She did an exemplary job in the in her Senate Judiciary hearings, and I'm confident that she will yeah. earn a confirmation because uh, she is she is an exemplary candidate, and uh, and will make an, a, a remarkable Supreme Court justice. And let me follow up, if I may, Senator Rick Scott, when our Ben Kennedy asked him in Washington this week, said, "No, I she's a very nice person. Glad she's from Florida." But I can't vote against vote for her because she is one of those judges that wants to legislate from the bench. Uh, what is your response to Senator Scott? Well, Senator Tax Hike seems more focused on his economic proposal that really will be the Republican Party plan if they, God forbid, take the majority. That would end Medicare as we know it. That would privatize Social Security, and that would raise taxes on workers and seniors. So, uh, it's not surprising that the, the, uh, one of our senators would decline to support one of the most qualified nominees for the Supreme Court in history, um, and to add insult to injury, even vote against someone from Florida. Well, let's talk about the economy. The jobs report this week was such a high for the Biden administration. But as you know, Congresswoman, the people who just go about their day uh, buying all the things they buy every day, that's now far more expensive. Uh, inflation still on the up. And so it's kind of mitigating that good news. Of course, your Republican colleagues are blaming inflation on the president and the policies at hand. And I wonder if you would respond to this sort of yin and yang and, and what we can expect. 
Well, we have the low, lowest unemployment rates that we've had, you know, not only before the pandemic, but but in several decades. And that's uh, on top of the fact that we've had a job record job creation for a for, uh, the first year of a first term president, uh, and and that we're really not only beyond recovery now but the economy is ready to kick into high gear. And that's creating a lot of opportunities. There are so many opportunities, not only to get a good job that pays a decent wage, but we're seeing an upswing in, in, the, in wages because finally employers realize that there are so many industries that are that pay you know poverty wages that no one can no family can live on and that is all thanks to president biden's and democrats policies meanwhile you have uh, one of our senators rick scott who has proposed an economic plan that would actually raise taxes on seniors and workers that would actually end medicare as we know it i mean bringing that debate up again imagine a, a senator from florida suggesting that we shouldn't continue medicare as we know it and and that we should really phase out social security as we know it okay so that's let me the let Republican me plan and that's the one of the decisions that will drive voters in the, in november so to, to your point just back to the question to your point on paper things are looking really good but in practice people are really still suffering um jen saki the white house press secretary oh, oh just a couple of days ago i want to say maybe last week kept repeating that this inflation jag is temporary but to on, on the ground what is temporary on this sunday morning and and how are we to see a way out of it you know uh, the president just ordered another million barrels of oil a day from the strategic gas reserves which is um, by, by some accounts about a 19-day supply gas prices still going up after a little low so so it's on the ground that i'm hoping you'll address yeah, there's no question that gas prices are higher than we want um, due to the Putin the Putin price hike, uh, and, and frankly because of the greed of oil and gas companies. I mean, Glenna, we have oil and gas companies that no matter how low a uh, a barrel of oil's price goes, that they don't lower the price of gas at the pump. And um, what is not very well known is that the oil and gas industry is sitting on on 12 excuse me, uh, is, is sitting on millions and millions. I think it's like 9,000, nine, nine, I'm, I'm guessing what you're talking about, 9, the leases, 9, leases. 9,000 no, leases. No, I've got it now. It's yeah, yeah. 9,000 unused leases on federal land, and we need to adopt a use it or lose it policy because they're sitting on land that they could use, that they could produce oil, uh, and they're not they're not using it so that there isn't a need for us to go outside of what the oil and gas industry can already produce. So what and is that bring down oil prices in addition to the hundred and eighty million barrels of oil that President Biden just committed to re release from the strategic oil reserve? What is then the president's position on dealing with the oil companies? Because, it, you know, the, the land leases, to your point, are there. But the infrastructure is yet to be built. I mean, it's square one. Oil from those like 9,000 leases are, you know, a decade away. Yeah, Glenna, they, they've been sitting on this land for years, and it's time for them to use it or lose it. I mean, they should no longer hold on to those leases if they're not going to you know, set up the infrastructure and produce the oil necessary for us to make sure that we can get more into the, the economy uh, and, and help us reduce gas prices. On top of that, 
they keep got gas prices high in spite of a, a barrel of oil's cost re reducing. That's unacceptable. And we also do need to start re re reducing uh, aggressively our reliance on fossil fuels. And so the combination of all of those efforts will uh, would bring the, pr the price of gas down. Uh, and and the as far as the price of groceries, look, I, I go to Publix every weekend. Um, I, I feel that pinch too. And it, it's, uh, it's absolutely essential that thanks to the infrastructure bill and the investments that we'll make as a result of the, uh, of the, the, the bill that will produce more supply chain relief this week, we're, we're going to start to see supply chain relief, and that's a, a high priority for President yeah. Biden yeah. and congressional Congresswoman, uh, I, I think you're undeniably right. There are good signs with the economy, unemployment 3.6%, um, and, and and wages are up, but inflation is nearly 8%. An NBC poll out this week shows that for most Americans, the number one issue is the cost of living, and they're going to hold somebody accountable, and it looks like next November it's going to be your party, the Democrats. How, how do you and how does the president counter that argument? I would beg to differ, only because you have two contrasting options for voters in November. You have a president in, in Joe Biden and a Democratic majority in our Congress that is aggressively doing all we can to make sure that we can move goods through that supply chain, make sure that there's more product available, go you know, invest in our infrastructure to take product from ship to shelf, make sure that we take aggressive action to reduce gas prices, all while <laughs> you have oil and gas companies that refuse to do anything and are sitting on their leases. And then you have that contrasted with a Republican Party that has Rick Scott proposing an economic yeah. plan that he says that they would use we, if they were in the majority, had, that would yeah. increase taxes. I, I'm trying to interrupt you. I do, I do want, I, excuse me, I do want to say I interviewed uh, Governor Scott, Senator Scott, a few weeks ago, and he, he denies that it's going to tax the middle class, but he did say everybody needs to put skin in the game and there may be some people paying taxes. He tries to well, defend it. His own majority it. leader didn't deny that. His own, own majority leader criticized the plan. Uh, but we, we, you should be asking every single Republican candidate for Congress what they think about Rick Scott's pl economic plan that he says is we, what the Republican yeah. Party will use you know, if they, God forbid, take the majority. Increase taxes on seniors and workers and an end to Medicare and Social Security as we know it. It's in black and white in his plan. There's no way for him to get around it. All right, hold on right now. We are going to take a little break back with more questions for Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz after the break. Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Congresswoman, I want to ask you about uh, the end next month, or in May, I should say, of Title 42. Kind of, that's the U.S. Code. Everyone's saying Title 42. A quick explanation for anyone who does not know what that means. It is the U.S. Code that allows first the Trump administration and now the Biden administration to either stop uh, immigration or deport under a pandemic health policy. That's about to come to an end. Dire predictions this week from all sides about a surge.
surge at the border. Uh, the Homeland Security Director Alejandro Mayorkas said that it is a whole government approach to that. Can you talk about what that means for South Florida, where the implications are great for a border surge? Yes, well, phasing out the really egregious, inhumane Trump-era immigration policy is incredibly important. And so what the Biden administration is doing, and I'm glad to see that they are, is that they're going to be changing their process for evaluating asylum seekers when they present at the border and making sure that those decisions are made more equitably, that they're made more, more promptly, and that we can make sure that processing occurs in a way that actually ensures that people who are truly fleeing, fleeing uh, a country in which they are being endangered have an opportunity to seek asylum, and those that, uh, that are not are sent back to their country. But just denying uh, asylum seekers and requiring them to main, remain outside the United States and potentially in danger is, is really unacceptable, and we, we have to make sure we make that transition properly. Yeah, Congresswoman, uh, this week, you and your fellow House members, at least you and the Democrats in the House, uh, took up a couple of bills important to you, important to most people. Uh, one is decriminalizing marijuana. It's been kind of a tough issue for you in the past, but you voted for it. And then you sponsored a bill to cap the cost of insulin at $35 per month, which frankly, is a godsend for a lot of elderly people who were paying a couple of hundred dollars a month. Talk to us about that bill. Michael, Americans spend 10 times more on insulin costs than in any other country. And so passing the, uh, the Affordable Insulin Now Act so that we can lower insulin prices to no more than $35 a month was absolutely essential. We have uh, about one in four people who require insulin uh, and are insulin dependent that actually have reported rationing their insulin because it is so outrageously expensive. There's no reason for that. Uh, what we need to be doing is making sure, as Democrats are, is focusing on lowering prescription drug costs, lower, you know, making sure that Big Pharma doesn't continue to, uh, to take advantage of, uh, of, of Americans who need vital, vital medicine like diabetics do, uh, make sure we lower ch child care costs and health care costs. And the contrast here is that Democrats are fighting to do that and Republicans are fighting against it. We're doing this all, all of this by ourselves, and the way that we're going to start making sure that we can continue to get the economy moving and lower inflation and lower costs is by focusing on the key things that matter to families, reducing health care costs, reducing prescription drug costs, reducing costs for child care, and lowering gas prices. And we need to work together to do that. Republicans are focused on corporate America, and Democrats are focused on our people. Who, want, who really need our assistance. Can we, um, I want to go back to that insulin vote. Can we, um, Tommy, our producer, had put up video of the actual floor vote in the House. If we can put that back up on the screen, if we have it, you'll see that there are only 12 Republicans who voted for uh, reduced price on insulin, critical to so many Americans. But the other side of the story is the CBO report, the Congressional Budget Office report on that, which essentially calls this vote an unfunded mandate and estimates $2 billion annually that is, that is not funded. Um, at least one Republican, one of your colleagues, said that was a, a critical calculation in a vote no. Um, so there is another side of the story to this. Uh, insulin to so many people, life-saving, as are other drugs, to your point, that 
that, that need to be addressed to get to people who need it. So, so talk about the costs of this as the sort of, you know, forgive the challenging the narrative question, but there, there is another side to these costs, is there not? The other side to, to these costs is that Republicans are in the pocket of big pharma. And let me give you a, a multiple examples. Remember, it's Republicans that refused when Medicare Part D, that was the prescription drug benefit added to Medicare, was negotiated. They refused to uh, require that the government can negotiate for lower prices with pharmaceutical companies. That's because the big pharma opposed it. They continue to refuse to allow negotiation for lower prices, even to this day, in the broader health care policies, because they care more about making sure they take care of their big pharmaceutical benefactors than they do about making sure that we, we can work together to lower prescription drug costs. So whether it's making sure that we target the cost of insulin, which is a life-saving drug that you, you will die if you don't have access to it, if you're diabetic, or the broader goal of trying to make sure that we can lower prices in America when we actually produce those drugs, invest American tax, taxpayer dollars in them, and those same drugs cost less by far in other countries than they do in the United States. Yeah, and Republicans sit on their hands. I'm, it's unacceptable. I, I, I apologize. We are out of time. We always enjoy talking with you. Thanks very much. Thanks again. All right, coming up, Broward County Superintendent of Schools is going to join us. The view from the district on parents' new rights in schools and that new uh, law that opponents call Don't Say Gay. It's The Parents' Right in Education Bill, as it is formally known, or it's known informally by critics, the Don't Say Gay Bill. Several civil rights organizations and a local couple are among plaintiffs who've already filed lawsuit against the new law, but more immediately, school districts are scrambling to understand what the new law requires of them. It takes effect in July, which means next school year. Broward County School Superintendent Vicki Cartwright is right here with us live to talk about that. Good morning, Superintendent. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me we, today. We are so glad you are here. All right. So as Glenna just said, the law goes into effect in July, but you know, the standards will not be written for another year on how to enforce it. So what do your teachers, those especially kindergarten through third grade, what are they going to say when a student perhaps says, well, you know, my two mommies or my two daddies, or says something which is innocent but may, in a sense, violate the spirit of this new law? What are you going to do? You know, that's a very tough situation that we have been put into at this point because basically we have a law, but we don't have the guardrails um, as to what is going to be allowable and what is not going to be allowable. And you were right, the Department of Education has a whole year um, in which to put those guardrails into place. Meanwhile, here's the law. What I can say is that our district strongly believes that students need and deserve to learn in safe environments without prejudice or discrimination. It is crucial that our schools cultivate those environments of acceptance and respect. And so for my teachers that are out there, what I'm going to be saying to them is that if, if a child brings in and, and here's a, a kindergarten classroom and um, a child has two mommies or maybe has two daddies and the child is talking about this, uh, that 
what we're going to, we're not going to be teaching about it, but we are going to have that environment of acceptance and respect for one another. And it may be just a simple thing that all, that happens across classrooms all across the U.S. where we have that, you know, it's okay. Sometimes mommies and daddies don't have to be a man and a woman that it, you, mommies and daddies can look um, completely different. And that's what makes every one of us so unique. So and then move on. Um, that way it just has that environment for that child for acceptance um, so that all of the children are, are supportive of one another. Superintendent, for, forgive the interruption, conversations on Zoom are really difficult to have. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, interrupt, but what I do want to bring up is that that one paragraph in a very big bill uh, talks about curriculum. And it was my understanding, and, and we really did take a dive on this new law for past several months, that conversations about families is not, not part of this bill. So that, you know, the, the real fear, I think, is a chilling effect of what people don't know. But, but the bulk of the bill is about parents' rights, and specifically that schools need to notify parents of everything that their child is learning. They need to mm -hmm. give uh, parents access to all records. And most notably, I thought, was get parents to actually permit plans for counseling and plans for uh, support for a student with an opt-out if they want. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about, is that very different now? Doesn't the district allow for total parent participation mm -hmm. and knowledge what what is the difference yeah. there you know the difference that we that's in place at this point in time is there's some language that is in the bill itself in the bill itself that is very um, concerning uh, because it's, it's very nebulous and, and you you don't know what it is so for example uh, it bars school personnel from discouraging or prohibiting the notification of parents or parental involvement and in critical decisions that affects a student's mental health their emotional health or the physical health or their well-being but the bill allows um, such information to be withheld if a reasonably prudent person would believe that such disclosure would result in abuse, abandonment, or neglect of the students. So what is that threshold of a reasonably prudent person? We don't know what that looks like or what that sounds like because we do have uh, processes in place in our schools right now to where if there's a student who comes to us and, and tells us, um, you know, that that they're, they're, they're gay. Uh, and at this point in time, we have a way in which to go through and work with that child. Is there something, uh, what supports does that child need in order to be successful? How can we help that child? Um, and also determine whether or not how they have that conversation at home. Uh, and so if we are, if we do determine, you know, with this initial conversation with a, with, with a student that um, the, in our reasonableness uh, that the, it may result in something happening at home, uh, abuse, yeah. abandonment, or neglect. Uh, at this point in time, we have a process that we have to help support that child all the way through until it, um, the parents do find out, you know, the student's able to, to reveal this to the to their parents. Yeah, well, that, and, that uh, Superintendent, that, I think, let me pursue that just for a second. Uh, if you reasonably, reasonably believe that the child says, if you tell my parents that I'm gay or trans and they're going to punish me, they may hit me, uh, under this law, can you still not contact the parent? So under this law, yes. If we, uh, if we believe that it's abuse, 
abandonment or neglect is going to occur by telling the parent we are if and we have a reasonableness uh, about this a prudent see to this then we are we do not have to tell the parent however there's a caveat to this and the caveat is is that let's say in that process the parent finds out and then the parent says yeah. wait a minute I wouldn't, I wouldn't do any abuse to my child. Why did you do this school district? I have a right to know. And so now it, this bill authorizes the parents to bring legal action against the school district to attain not only the declaratory judgment, but also provides for an award of injunctive relief, um, damages, as well as reasonable attorney fees and court costs. So now even if, even though we believed we were doing what was right for the child, um, the parent finds out now they can sue us, and there's there's no there's no precedent out there. So what is the amount of that relief uh, that may come back um, against the school district? We well, just don't know. There there is. I mean, a lot, many people may not know that almost that story in a nutshell is right now a federal case in Leon County and was by all accounts the inception mm -hmm. of this bill being written. It's a family, Little John is their last name out of Leon County, whose daughter was receiving just such services at her own request and against her parents' wishes and without her parents knowing. So might the outcome of that case in Leon County set the kind of precedent you're looking for? Yes. Yes, um, that type of guidance is exactly what we need. Uh, again, you know, because we right now, as, as you just heard, the way in which the bill's written, it almost incentivizes districts to make sure that you're telling parents uh, because of no guardrails, no interpretations, and no past precedent on this. Yeah. Superintendent, um, uh, when the governor talks about this bill, not just the day he signed it, but almost every day, and he did this week, he talked about the fact that I don't want little children going into kindergarten or first, second grade, you know, and being sexualized by their teacher. Now, uh, if the governor were here, I'd ask him, what do you mean sexualized by a teacher? Uh, but I'm sure you've thought about that. What, what, what do you think he's saying? That the teacher is going to somehow groom these kids, encourage a, a child to say, I'm gay or I want to be trans? That's my only actual interpretation that I have at this point in time. I'm not really sure either because we don't do that in those grade levels uh, with with the little ones. Uh, you know, again, I think the, the danger on some of this, that the unintended consequences, you know, our, our students who are members of the LGBTQ plus community are often overrepresented as victims of violence, abuse, and exclusionary practices as compared to their peers. Um, you know, unfortunately, we know that even according to the 2019 Youth Risk Behavior Survey, our lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or questioning students uh, report increased instances of bullying based on gender identity and sexual identity. And, you know, we know the Trevor's Project, the National Survey on the LGBTQ Youth Mental Health 2020 indicates that depression and suicide rates among our transgender youth who also have access to gender affirming spaces are nearly half of that for those students who do not have access to gender affirming spaces. Right. So again, we're, we're not in the in our schools, all we're trying to do is protect our students and, and give them that 
that environment um, to where there's acceptance and respect. Uh, and when we start getting into the, the these areas to where we are limiting those environments, it's just such a slippery slope. And you know, also one thing I've, I find very interesting about this bill, the whole thing written in, um, it does not appear right now that this new law would even apply to charter schools where he signed the bill into a place at a charter school. Um, you know, I, before we end this conversation, I just want to say on a personal note, um, my daughter attended a Broward County public high school. And whenever there was a question about a class or her conduct or a something that a teacher, something that happened at school, uh, we would go in and were always greeted openly. Anything that we wanted uh, was uh, given to us. We had good conversations. So I have to say, when I see parental rights and education bill, I've got to say that 20 years ago, uh, I was a parent and I had plenty of rights in school. And I think all your parents have a right. I mean, your schools respond when t parents want to come in and talk about their kids. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, this is a partnership. Uh, raising children is not just the role of one person um, or a uh, or just a parent, right? Or a set of parents or a set of guardians or caregivers. Uh, it truly goes back to the cliche, it takes a village to raise a child, right? And we all have to work together alongside one another in order to ensure that we are uh, raising our children um, in a way uh, that allows them to be as successful as possible. Now, I'm not talking about in schools that we go in and, you know, the physical act of, of raising a child. We just make sure that the structures uh, are in place as as children grow so that w as they are developmentally um, appropriate, having different conversations that they bring to the table, that we are having that environment uh, to where they feel com there's comfort and there's respect and there's acceptance. You know, Broward County Public Schools supports our diverse student population, including those who are LGBTQ+. And in fact, we were one of the very first districts in the country to pass a resolution supporting our LGBTQ plus community. So, so again, we, this is a partnership. Yeah, yeah. And, and we will absolutely be keeping in touch with you as this continues because it is unfolding real time as we speak and we certainly do appreciate your time this Sunday afternoon. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And up next, back to work for lawmakers on deadline to redo Florida's new congressional district. State lawmakers are going to be going back to Tallahassee later this month to draw up a congressional district map acceptable to the governor. We'll talk about that next. Back to the drawing board for state lawmakers later this month. This week, the governor vetoed the congressional redistricting maps they submitted. The once-a-decade redo of these districts by law and constitutional mandate must be done in a fair and equitable manner for all voters. But in this case, who decides what's fair and equitable? Lawmakers, the governor, or perhaps a judge? Two of the state representatives on the redistricting subcommittee are right here to examine just that. Democrat Kelly Skidmore of Boca Raton, Republican Tom Fabricio of Miramar. Representatives, it is so good to have you with us today. We're, good we're, morning. Uh, Thank you so much for having us. Tom, good to see you back. And Representative Skidmore, glad to meet you. Uh, Representative Skidmore, you were extremely critical 
uh, when these two maps were sent to the governor, which he vetoed, uh, I mean, it's almost unbelievable that, that the legislature would send two maps and say sort of, well, if you don't like the first one, we got a backup map here. Uh, uh, what was wrong with that? Well, there were several things wrong with that. Um, the first of which was that was a uh, an attempt to acquiesce to the governor's will. The House had drawn uh, a set of maps that the House uh, was prepared to stand by. The Senate had also drawn a, a uh, congressional district map that uh, we were willing to go into conference on. The fact that we ended up with the second map is only because of the interference of the governor. So, uh, Tom, the what uh, your there. colleague, is, um, what your colleague is I calling. I mean, let me let me, people, let me just ask a question before you answer. Sure. Because what your colleague is calling interference, uh, the governor flat out said what he was looking for. Has the veto pen? That's what he has. That's what he used, and that was not a surprise. But he actually cited the 14th Amendment. He said, this, look, it's not constitutional. It violates the 14th Amendment. That was his reason. Okay, go. Is he right? <laughs> well, I got, I got, first I want to respond to uh, Representative Skidmore's comments about uh, that uh, the majority was acquiescing to the governor's will. Um, we clearly weren't. And, it, and, and she'll remember the day that we voted on this on the floor, uh, there were uh, messages about tweets and whatnot about the governor telling us that he was going to absolutely veto the maps if we didn't, uh, if we passed the maps that had been presented. So uh, the maps that were passed were not, certainly were not uh, to acquiesce to anything other than uh, what the, the view of the Florida House. Um, the governor has made uh, statements that the maps that we passed are in violation of the 14th Amendment, that they, that they don't provide uh, equal protection of the laws. And I think he has, he has uh, colorable arguments there. Uh, I mean, I, I look through his uh, memo. I am not a constitutional lawyer. I am a lawyer, but I don't specialize in 14th Amendment constitutional issues or and I don't, I'm certainly not an attorney that specializes in redistricting. However, the time that we've spent on it and we've looked at it, uh, he makes arguments there that are novel and I believe are meritorious. Um, but I'm not necessarily sure exactly how a court's going to rule on that. Well, let me, let me ask you this. I think the fact that you're not a constitutional lawyer is a plus for this conversation because I, I would like to hear your interpretation sort of as a, a layperson like we are. What is it about the maps that the governor thinks violates the 14th amendment in your perspective i mean ex explain that to well, in layman's well, terms i could tell you i mean i, I can't i'm certainly not gonna uh, i'm certainly not gonna jump into the mind of the governor and speak for him on this but what i'll tell you is that if we look at the two maps the 7503 um secondary map and the primary map the secondary map is similar to the last map that i saw uh, and that Representative uh, Skidmore saw in the Congressional uh, Redistricting Subcommittee, uh, where you have that, what we call um, Congressional District 5, that spans pr pretty clearly across the state on the northern end of the state of Florida. That's the purple, because um, that, we're, kind of, we're kind of looking at it just so people are watching. It's, a, it's right. the purple band on the map on the left. Right, and, and that map, and, and I do agree that that, that map, that drawing of that district, it does not comply with the general compactness standards that we, we are addressing throughout the state. And, and as a matter of fact, in that last hearing where we were in that subcommittee uh, meeting, uh, 
Mr. Popper, who is uh, one of the people who put together this palsy popper compactness score, which is used around the country to determine whether districts are sufficiently compact and not necessarily gerrymandered, he came in and he testified and he indicated how the compactness score on that particular district, uh, CD5, was way lower than any other district in the state of Florida yeah. by leaps and bounds, yeah. as a matter of fact. Tom, and let, let me, let me Jim, Tom, I, I beg your pardon, let me, let me yes, yes, Representative Skidmore, jump in here and, and, and respond. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, and while there is uh, merit, obviously, for compactness, and that is a tier two requirement in the Constitution. Tier one requirements include making sure that a district does not favor or disfavor a political party or an incumbent and does not reduce the ability and opportunity for minority and language minority populations to elect a candidate of their choice. Tier one supersedes tier two. Yeah, well, Always. well the two as I understand it, it's very complex, but the two districts that are really at issue here are District 5 across northern part of the state, which is represented by a black congressman. And then there is a new district in the center of the state where they're going to split up a district, and I believe it's the one that Congresswoman Val Demings has represented, and they're redrawing that district too. And the objection from you, is it not, Representative Skidmore, is that the power of black voters is going to be diminished here. That is what I believe, absolutely. And the Senate and the House disagreed on Congressional District 10. The Senate declared it to be a protected seat and the House did not. So clearly there was some disagreement as to whether um, it was, but there was never really any uh, detail that we were given or data that we were given to understand why one chamber would consider it protected and, and, uh, and the House would not. So that is clearly a problem. So wouldn't, the, wouldn't the, the data for that be, I mean, I probably could, could Google it right now to see who lives where. Well, how hard is that data to get? That data in and of itself, the census data and the formula that is used and um, some of the uh, uh, protected um, material and data that we were not able to see shows the full picture. So you can get some information and you can see um, in the information and the data that was provided during the subcommittee meetings, um, the performance of that district. But what we're being told to rely on is trends and that trending forward, those districts, um, particularly CD10, would not continue to be protected. And so therefore we can't protect it today. All right, Which I disagree with. Representative, hold your thoughts, please. We're going to take a brief commercial break and we'll be back to talk more about redistricting. On this week in South Florida, the topic du jour of the moment here is congressional redistricting. We're speaking with State Representative Tom Fabricio of Miramar and State Representative Kelly Skidmore of Boca Raton. Uh, Tom Fabricio, I've got to say, in uh, the way I read the legislature, uh, which is controlled by your party, there are very few things on which you as Republicans defied the governor, but on this matter, you essentially did. The governor wanted essentially 18 
Republican congressional districts, you know, and 10 Democrats. You proposed 16 districts and 12 Democratic districts. So are you still defying the governor? Uh, it's an interesting way that you put that. Look, so the way I've explained redistricting to many people is you have data that comes from the census and we have a law and we apply the data to the law. And we and one of the points that I've worked at looking at very closely is a compactness scale of them to avoid necessarily the gerrymandering issues. So we've worked very uh, closely. We've had robust discussion both at the subcommittee that I see it, sit on as well as on the floor. Uh, over all these issues. You know, I've been looking at the maps here this morning while we've been talking, and I think we're working towards having a great solution. I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen when we get back up to Tallahassee. I anticipate that we're going to be called into the Congressional Subcommittee hearings, and we're going to have more robust discussion over the application of that data to the law. And that's what the law, that's what uh, we're compelled to do as members of the Florida legislature, and we'll continue to do, to do that. And I imagine the governor does have the veto ability, and that's part of the legislative process. So I expect that we're going to come closer to having a solution that's equitable and agreeable to all Floridians. And once we get that, we're going to get that passed and we're going to go forward. You know, Kelly, to, to Tom's point, the rules say you can't you can't consider party when drawing those lines but you can consider census data and the rules also say you sort of have to take into consideration consideration not only minority race but minority language so that that's a complicated calculation but when you sit in those in those committee meetings do you discuss party at all not at all absolutely not we never discussed that um, it is the, the congressional maps are exceedingly uh, challenging because unlike the legislative maps, every single district can only have a deviation of one person. So 28 districts have to be drawn with the exact same number of people, plus or minus just one person. So it is an exceedingly challenging job. And the, but the criteria are set in place for the cartographers to be able to do that. Uh, we did um, we did not do that uh, ourselves in committee. Yeah. That was done outside of the committee process, actually, and we were just presented the maps once they were drawn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Representative Skidmore, what is the likelihood that this is going to wind up in court, as indeed redistricting did 10 years ago, and then the Fair Districts Amendment to the Constitution was passed that says you can't gerrymander, but a court drew up most of these districts or all the districts 10 years ago. Are we going to do that again? We are likely to end up in court. There are currently two court challenges. Those were based on the impasse, however, um, due to the governor's uh, veto threat while we were in debate on the maps in the, in the Florida House. Um, those uh, lawsuits will most likely go forward, just, you know, depending on what it is that we pass during the special session. If you read between the lines of the memo that the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House sent out, the goal is to pass a map that the governor will sign. And we all understand that the only map the governor is going to sign is one that 
diminishes minority uh, opportunity to vote. All right, so it's, it's sounding to me at least like it's going to wind up in court probably. Tom Fabricio, Kelly Skidmore, great to have you on today. We appreciate Thank it, you. and we'll see what happens and, up in Tallahassee. And just for the record, for those who can see, Representative Fabricio is shaking his head. So that'll be the last word. And <laughs> I, thank I, I you do believe, time. Kind of, I, I do believe we, that we, we got, are going to end up in court. We got to go. go. Promise you'll be back because this is pretty fascinating stuff, and, and TV is like that. But thank you so much, and, and we'll see you soon. We'll be right back. If you haven't had enough to rewatch today's interviews or to listen to this in this week in South Florida podcast, all you have to do is scan this QR code right there with your phone. It takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of localpen.com. And as always, thank you so much for being with us. We are online 24-7. Stay informed, <laughs> get involved, have a great Sunday.